Shabbat Shalom, everybody. All right. You know, I feel like my list of props that I bring up here gets larger and larger every week and more unwieldy. I'm going to be like one of those prop comedians. I'm going to bring a watermelon and a sledgehammer up here one day. All right. So one of the props I decided to bring up here today is a book that should be familiar to a lot of you guys. And I don't recognize this. It is not the Bible. Looks like one, but it's not the Bible. This is this art scroll, complete art scroll Sador. This is basically every Jewish prayer you could possibly imagine is in this book. This is a big book. Look at this thing. Have you ever tried to look at this? It's, there's, there's a lot of stuff in here. A lot of these prayers are long. A lot of them are, they're, they're all in Hebrew. Um, and uh, a lot of them are very difficult to say. But for me, there is one prayer in this book that is the most difficult for me to say. Anyone have a guess what it could possibly be? It's not the Amidah, it's not the Shema, it's not the Kaddish or anything like that. It's the Modayani. Now, why is the Modayani, now what is the Modayani, first of all, and why is it so difficult for me to say? Now, the reason it's difficult for me to say is not because of the content of the prayer itself or the length of it or the amount of Hebrew in it. It's when you're supposed to say it that makes it hard for me. Does anyone know when the Modei Ani is supposed to be said? First thing in the morning. Now, first thing in the morning, like, after you go to the bathroom? Before you eat breakfast? Uh, After you you brush your teeth? No, when's it supposed to be said? Upon waking, before you open your eyes. I forget every, almost every day I forget. I'm like, oh, nuts! Oh, I close my eyes and and start over again. Pull the covers over my head. It's tough. Why? That, that's, that's, that's a lot. That's a, that's a hard thing to ask somebody, really. Why do we need to say the modayani before we open our eyes? What's, can't, can't, can't wait till after breakfast when I'm awake. I need some coffee in me. So I want to get back to that. Hold on to that thought. Maybe we'll get back to it in a few minutes here. Before we do that, I want to start today by telling a famous midrash about Solomon, king, son of King David. So Solomon was still a young man, when, and he had just recently become the king of Israel. Now that night, Solomon went to sleep, and he had a strange dream. He dreamed he was standing at the bottom of a grassy hill, and when he looked up, he saw a splendid temple at the top. Solomon started up the hill, and as he did, he heard the voice of God calling to him from the temple. Solomon had said, Come to me, that I may grant you any blessing that you desire. So Solomon, of course, hurried to the top of the hill and entered the temple, searching for the Lord. He looked all around, but he didn't see God there. Instead, he saw a long hallway filled with beautiful, magnificent tapestries. He stopped at the first one and saw that it was an image of him, surrounded by gold and silver and rubies and emeralds and all the wealth of the whole world. And Solomon thought to himself, How wonderful it would be to be blessed with such wealth. And he looked at the next tapestry. And once again, it was an image of him. This time it showed him at the head of an army, conquering his enemies. He saw all the kings of the land bowing down before him. And Solomon thought to himself, Oh, how wonderful it would be to be blessed with such glory. And Solomon looked at the last tapestry on the wall, and saw that once more it was an image of him. This time it showed Solomon as an old man with a long white beard. 
But despite his age, Solomon was still strong and healthy and possessed his full intellect. In this picture, he was laughing and surrounded by his many grandchildren and great-grandchildren. And Solomon thought to himself how wonderful it would be to be blessed with such a long life. At last, Solomon came to the end of the hallway, and waiting at the end of the temple was the glory of the Lord. And the Lord spoke to him, saying, Solomon, ask me any blessing, no matter what it may be, and I will grant it to you. So Solomon fell to his knees before the Lord and averted his eyes. And when he closed his eyes, he thought of all the things he had seen in those tapestries. When he looked up, this is what he said. Lord, what I want the most is to be a good king for my people. If it be your will, grant me wisdom, Lord, that I may always make good judgments and always know the right thing to do for my kingdom. And the Lord smiled down at Solomon. Solomon, you have already been blessed with wisdom to ask for such a thing. But indeed, I will grant this to you. And because you have proven yourself to be a man after my heart, I will bless you with wealth, glory, and a long life as well. And that's how the story of Solomon became so wise. Solomon's story has a happy ending. And the thing is, in stories like this, happy endings are unusual. Have you ever watched The Twilight Zone? You know, you guys know what I'm talking about, right? In most stories about wish fulfillment, like the monkey's paw or something, the lesson at the end is, be careful what you wish for, because he just might get it. The protagonist usually wishes for selfish things that he believes will make him happy, only to find out that those things are a greater curse than they are a blessing, and usually leave him off worse than when he started. But Solomon's story isn't like that. Solomon is able to look past his own selfish desires and instead chooses a gift that's going to benefit other people. In doing so, Solomon was demonstrating that he valued the things that God wanted for him more than the things that he may have wanted for himself. But this story is exceptional because by and large, most people aren't like that. Most people, if by some fantastic turn of events, were given the opportunity to have any wish fulfilled, they would almost certainly ask for something selfish. Now, why is that? You know, think about it for a second. I mean, I just told you about all these wish fulfillment stories that have these unhappy endings. These stories are ingrained into our culture. The, the lessons we learn from them are written into our collective consciousness. We know in our hearts that selfishness leads to ruin, and yet I guarantee that 95% of the people would ask for Scrooge McDuck's money bank so they could swim in gold coins until they died of heavy metal poisoning. You know, why is that? Why do people desire the wrong things? Because we have been lied to. Everything that the world has taught us about what will make us happy is dead wrong. So today I'm going to do, we're going to do a little thought experiment here. You know, what if? What if we could get anything we, we wanted, if we, that we could wish for? So today I want to take a look at a few of the things that we are most wrong about. And then I want to look at what God tells us will truly make us happy. We're also going to look at pictures of uh, cute baby animals. Because... Uh, you know, because this sermon, I don't want the sermon to get too dark. So. <laughs> oh, I changed my mind. Cute baby, cute baby animals are what makes us happy. I skipped to the end. I'm sorry. The end of sermon. <laughs> okay. All right. All right. So, no, no. Here we go. So, you know that game show, Family Feud? Yeah. I've never actually watched it because uh, of my life. But, you know, but, but I think how it works is you answer questions based not on what you think the answer is, 
but on what you think most people would think the answer is. So if you're on the show and you were asked, all right, what is the number one thing most people would wish for? That's my game show host voice. What's the number one thing most people would wish for? Not money. It's not money. That's a good question. Good guess. It's not the number one thing that most people, it's not the number one thing that most people want. Okay, I'll give you a hint. All right. So I'm a creature of habit. When I go to the gym, there's this one treadmill that I really, really like to use. It's no better than the other treadmill, but it's my treadmill. And I'm very upset if someone else is on it. You know, so, but I wish I wasn't in love with this treadmill because it happens to be stationed in front of the television that shows the E network. Now, this is horrible because I'm reasonably certain that the entire channel has been bought by the Kardashian family. It doesn't matter what time of day, what day of the week. I can go there at 3 in the morning, and the only thing I've ever seen on this channel is one of the many awful reality TV shows that details their dull, vapid, fabulously wealthy lives. So these are people who pay to produce the show out of their own pocket so that they can ensure that they will always have an outlet to be able to show their face on TV. They use their wealth as a conduit to get what they really desire. Can anyone guess what the number one thing that people desire is? Fame. Mm, yeah. In a recent survey of high school kids, 51% of them, this is actually a couple of years ago this survey got taken, I bet you it's higher now, 51% of kids said that their ultimate goal was to become famous. Not rich, famous. Now this is brand new to humanity. You know, your first instincts towards money or health were usually right. For thousands of years, material goods and security dominated, you know, our desires. But now, any talentless schmuck with an internet connection can have his own YouTube channel, Instagram followers, and fashion blog. And with this stuff, the desire for fame has shot up to number one with a bullet. Pardon my Belgian. Yeah. But this is where those lies we've been told come into play. We watch TV and the movies, and we see the, glor the glamorous lives that famous people live. We see how every door is open to them. The world is at their feet. And we think to ourselves, how amazing it must be to be loved and adored and given all that attention. In reality, it's just, it's not true. I'm going to tell you the truth now. The most stressful thing in the world, the most stressful thing in the world for humans is when your goals are tied to the approval of other people. There's nothing more stressful when your happiness is dependent on other people being happy with you. Listen, I can attest to this. I stress out every week about whether you guys will like my sermons. There are days where, like, I have the best job in the world. I, can't, I cannot deny it. I have the best job in the world. But there are days when I'm in my office writing, and I am just wishing I was still stacking boxes in a warehouse. You know? It's not so bad for me, because I know you guys love me, and, and if, I, if I put you to sleep, you'll forgive me anyway. But imagine that those others whose approval you so desperately want aren't your employers or your families or your friends. Instead, are an enormous crowd of strangers holding you up to an unrealistic ideal built by publicists, thick makeup, and Photoshop magazine covers. So you could seek this comfort from the circle of your friends, only now your friends have been replaced with hangers-on who only want a piece of the spotlight. And I hope you have a thick skin, too, because once you're famous, you can never get away with making another mistake ever again. If you fumble a football, everyone hates you. 
you get a speeding ticket, you must be on drugs, and you're going to be on the front page of the, of the newspaper. And heaven forbid you leave the house without makeup. Ooh. Ooh. Fame is nothing but a paper-thin substitute for real love. And it's a poor one at that. Is any wonder that famous people are four times as likely to commit suicide as the rest of us? I was surprised when I read that. I thought the number was going to be higher. I mean, how many celebrities can you name that have killed themselves? Time for a picture of a baby, baby dolphin and a penguin. And you see why I need the cute animals? It's dark, man. Okay, so fame was number one. And we see how it might not be what it's cracked up to be. So what's next? After fame, what do you think is the thing that most people believe will make them happy? No, it's money. Come on, guys. <laughs> yeah. Of course it's money. Come on, let's not kid ourselves here. Most people only get out of bed every day because it edges us closer to having the future that we want. You get out of bed so you can go to work and make money. Your kids get out of bed so they can go to school so they can get a job so they can go to work and make money. If we won the lottery, most of us would show up to office the next day wearing an, well, this is me, I would wear an ankle-length fur coat, more jewelry than Mr. T, and just stay in there long enough to hand in our resignation on the back of a $100 bill. Hold on. There we go. And that sounds pretty good, honestly, right? I mean, money is not like fame. You get to choose what you do with money. You don't have to let it control you if you don't want to. Most people think that money would make them happy, and it's, it's, it's hard to argue. But here's the thing. A while back, some statisticians did a survey trying to find out what the happiest country in the whole world was, based on the personal happiness of the people living there. So guess what the happiest country in the world is? So I heard someone say Denmark, Costa Rica over right here. Iceland, right here in the Scandinavian countries. Sweden. Nigeria. They didn't survey, they didn't survey quality of life. It measured how content the people in the country were with their quality of life. Actually, all those Norwegian countries you talked about, actually, has some, those score some of the lowest in, uh, in, in contentment. Highest in quality of life, lowest in contentment. You know, turns out Nigerians are happier with their lives than the people of any other country. America came, in num America came in number 16. Did I mention the average Nigerian makes $300 a year? That's less than a hundredth of what the average American makes. America being both the wealthiest nation in the world and the country that hands out 120 million prescriptions for antidepressants every year. So China is actually turning into a great object lesson in this. You know, as their economy explodes and income skyrocket, their levels of happiness and personal satisfaction are dropping at the same rate. So why is that? Well, for one thing, human beings are kind of programmed never to be satisfied. Uh, there's a scene from the movie Wall Street that I think uh, really captures this idea well. There's a meeting between these two characters, Jake, who's this young idealistic man, and Breton, who's the greedy head of this evil corporation. Jake, you know, goes to Breton and he asks, so what's your number? When Breton doesn't understand, Jake explains that everyone has this really far out number that represents total success, the ability to get out of the race knowing that he is now the victor. So what's your number, Jake repeats. Breton considers, and after a few moments of silence, responds with one word, more. Humans are always comparing themselves to their neighbor. If you, have, if, you're, if you come rich, you automatically want the things that other rich people have. In fact, you want things that are better than what they have. And you won't be happy until you get it. 
You know, a few months back, I read an article that I thought was the worst thing I have ever read. It was written by this Wall Street investor who was easily cleared several million dollars a year. And in this article, he was seriously complaining about how hard it was for him to get by in life and how he deserved to be paid more. He was crying about how his country club membership cost $25,000. His gym membership is $10,000. I pay $10 a month. I don't know what he's doing here. You know, tuition for a private school for his four-year-old was $60,000. He has to maintain a high-rise apartment in the city, and he has a mansion in Connecticut and a summer house in Vermont. You know, how, how, can you, how can you live like that? Was, you know, this article was dead serious. It wasn't a satire. And I was getting more and more angry as I read it, and then it hit me. This is what Nigerians think of me when I complain about my life. What must they think of me when I complain about my car payment, which is more than what they make in a year? Can you imagine what they think of iPhones? I'm sorry, I'm taking all the fun out of your fantasy. Here's a tiny hippo. No. <laughs> okay, let's keep going here. What else? What, what else do you think people will think make them happy? Yeah. Health is a good one. I'm not going to use good examples. <laughs> I'm going to use bad ones. <laughs> Well, okay, here. So, what, so, what, so what's, the, what's the number three thing? Okay, this isn't a problem for me because I look like a love child of uh, Vin Diesel, The Rock, and Woody Allen. But I bet most people look in the mirror every day and wish they were a little taller, a little thinner, had a little bit better skin. Beauty. That's the number, thing, number three thing people most want. Now, being physically attractive does, it does have concrete advantages. Attractive people earn more, they get better grades, they have better jobs, they find more successful partners than average or less attractive people. Uh, strangers are more likely to help them in a crisis. Tom, do you remember that lesson we did in lunch where, like, you know, the beautiful woman was stealing a bicycle and, and all these men stopped to help her steal it? <laughs> yeah. Beautiful people have wider social circles. So what's the problem? Wouldn't this be a good thing to wish for? Wouldn't this make you happy? Well... Remember, the thing is we're talking about here, it's not success, it's happiness. What people don't realize, or at least forget, is that beautiful people have the exact same self-esteem problems as the rest of us. Remember how we talked about wealth being relative? It's the same thing with beauty. If you're more attractive than all of your friends, then you just start comparing yourself to the people in the movies instead. So in other words, they've adjusted to the experience of being attractive the same way our high-income earners have adjusted to having money. They just pick up other flaws to worry about. Sure, if you guys woke up tomorrow looking like Brad Pitt, I don't know if you're a lady, that'd actually be a kind of a weird thing. But you notice the big difference the way people treat you. But if you were born looking that way, you'd have no way of grasping it. The same way right now, you don't realize what it's like to live with some kind of horrible deformity. And if you do have a horrible deformity, you don't know what it's like to live with the worst one, like having two heads or like, three belly buttons. And wait, it gets, okay, wait, it gets worse. Have you ever noticed how the pretty girl makes a really lame joke, all the guys laugh? Attractive people live in a world where most of the feedback they get is dishonest. And they know this. The compliments mean nothing. They just learn that's the sound people make when they walk by. And as a result, attractive people tend to dismiss the genuine compliments they get in other areas, like their work or their personality or their sense of humor or their creativity because it gets lumped in with the same counterfeit flattery they've been getting their whole lives. Being beautiful means you can never bring yourself to believe anything nice anyone says about you. Last one, I swear. My wife is the most beautiful woman in the world, and I mean everything I say to her. <laughs> 
All right. How about we address a variation of what Solomon himself wished for? Solomon asked to be the wisest man in the world, and that worked out pretty good for him. But what most people don't understand is that there is a big difference between wisdom and intelligence. If I were to give you an example, I might say that, uh, here we go, Forrest Gump. Not too smart. Very wise, though. On the other hand, say Richard Nixon, very intelligent, didn't make the wisest decisions. Yeah, I think if most people had to choose between the two, they would choose to be smart. Most people believe that being a genius would make them pretty happy. Okay, now, I'm using the broader definition of the word genius here, meaning anyone with an extraordinary talent or skill. So, for instance, Dennis Rodman, you know, he was a genius at rebounding basketballs. But he was probably not a genius in the same way that Einstein was. Or was he? <laughs> but as Dennis demonstrates, genius, whether it involves writing groundbreaking computer code, picking stocks, or, you know, writing brilliant lyrics, means you, one thing above all else. You are forever granted an exception to society's rules. Only I'm allowed to have my cell phone on here. Have you ever watched the show Sherlock? Yeah. Because Sherlock Holmes, is a, he's a great example of this. Because he's a genius, he gets a free pass to do drugs on the job. He breaks every law in the kingdom. He insults Scotland Yard to its face. Treats Watson like garbage. That sounds awesome! The real-world examples are just as extreme. From Ernest Hemingway to Kanye West, being a genius means you get to do great things, but it's also a blank check for being a jerk. And who really can turn that down? So what's the problem this time? Because you know there is one. All right. You're going to do another thought experiment. You want to know what it's like to live life as a genius? It's easy. If you want to get a glimpse of what life is like as a genius, go out, gather all of the stupidest, most incompetent people you've ever met, and hang out with them all day. Cringe at their stupid jokes. Feel the frustration as they fumble even the easiest tasks and fail to grasp the simplest concepts. Being a genius must be like that only every day. Everyone is an idiot compared to them. Can you imagine what it must be like to make friends in that world? These dudes. <laughs> How can you make connections every time you try to express yourself? All you get in return is a blank stare and a little bit of drool dangling from the corner of their mouth. Not that you have time for friends anyway. Genius takes practice. Lots of it. To become an expert in something, you have to devote an enormous amount of time to it. Working, studying, practicing your craft, at least 10,000 hours. So that's four hours a day, 365 days a year, for eight years in a row. Behind every genius is hundreds of weekends spent poring over texts, or playing an instrument, or practicing karate while everyone else was out having a life. And if you're a genius in some kind of creative field, then there's a good chance you actually have mental illness to deal with. No, I'm serious. There's only 1% only of the population suffers from bipolar disorder. But 50% of poets have it, 38% of musicians, and 20% of painters have it. It's just part of the package. Compare the number of great musical innovators who've died of suicide or drug overdose versus, say, the number of plumbers who've died the same way. It's better to stand in a sewer all day. Okay, you're probably ready to kill me at this point. I'm ruining your fantasies. What will make me happy? What is left? Well, there's this. <laughs> okay. But let's try something else, too. Something that will maybe put some things into perspective here. If your health allows, please do this. All right. 
I want you to cross your ankles and squeeze your knees tight together. I'm doing it behind the podium, I swear. Now take your arms and grab your elbows and hug yourself tight. Now squeeze your eyes shut. Now stay like that for a minute. Not very comfortable, is it? Imagine you meet a mysterious and powerful billionaire. He tells you, I am prepared to make you very wealthy, but wealth does not come without sacrifice. I will deposit $10 million into your bank account this very moment, but in return, you must allow my personal surgeon here to perform three operations on you. First, he will cut off your legs at the knees. Then he will take your arms off at the shoulders. And finally, he will remove first your left and then your right eye. All three operations will be clean and painless. And when you wake up, you will be rich. Now, would you accept this offer? Oh, okay, it's 10 million. No, come on. What if I raise the compensation to $50 million? Then will you do it? I will pay you $1 billion. Will you take the surgery? Okay, now everyone, uncross your ankles and relax your legs. Stretch your arms way out to the side. And now open your eyes. Congratulations. You are all rich. There's a saying in the Talmud. It asks, who is wealthy? And the answer is, he who appreciates all that he has. None of you may have a billion dollars, but you all possess at least three things that are worth a billion dollars to you. And that's something to be happy about, isn't it? So, Way back at the beginning, I was talking about this Mode on E. You know, every morning, observant Jews say this prayer. It's the first prayer a Jew says when he gets out of bed in the morning. It's said before you even, you know, before you even open your eyes. While you're still laying in bed, you say, I offer thanks before you, living and eternal King, for you have mercifully restored my soul within me. Your faithfulness is great. And that's just the first blessing. You know, you say that before you open your eyes, but then as you get out of bed, you continue saying these prayers. As you go about your morning, you praise God for, as you put on your clothing, you praise God for giving you, for giving you clothing. When you stand up out of your bed, you praise God and thank you, Lord, for giving me the strength to stand up. Thank you, God, for giving me the ability to understand words. You know, these are things that we couldn't live without, but they're also things that we take for granted that we're so used to having that we forget to be grateful for them. God wants to remind us every day, as soon as we wake up, that gratitude is a secret to happiness. That's why, you know, this morning, you know, in preparation for my sermon, I, before I got out of bed, I was just sort of listing things that I was grateful for. I was kind of cranky, you know, I, you know the, the, the weather's not been great. I feel a little unhappy sometimes. But then I start thinking about all the things I'm grateful for, you know, for my fiance and for my son, for this congregation, you know, for my home, for my car, for all my friends and all the things, and just being able to be here and worship God. And I had nothing to be miserable about. God wants us to stop worrying for a second about all the things we wish we had, like fame and wealth and beauty, and instead take a look at all the amazing things that he gives us every day. And when we do that, we can always be happy. Because who needs all those shallow, temporary pleasures? When we have a God in our lives who has given us all that we need, Yeshua tells us, seek first the kingdom of God, and then these things will be added to you. God knows what we really need. He will take care of it. You worry about what he needs from you. That's the secret of happiness. Quick story just to end things. 
So uh, these novelists, Kurt Vonnegut and Joseph Heller, were once talking at a party. No, this is a good story. They were once talking at a party hosted by a billionaire hedge fund manager. Vonnegut pointed out that their wealthy host had made more money in one day than Heller had ever made from writing Catch-22. Heller responds, yes, but I have something that he never will. Oh, what's that, Vonnegut asked. Heller looks at him and smiles. Enough. All right. Thank you, everybody. Shabbat shalom. All right.